Like a sailing vessel, Greyhound benefits from the sleekness of its design and its character's lack of baggage, both literal and emotional. Glenn Weldon of NPR, his review of Greyhound, that's right, a new Tom Hanks movie available right now on Apple Plus. And this is a good week here in Cinephile because you're saying, okay, enough of the retreads, enough of you talking about Scarface, enough of your bloviating about shows you used to watch like Oz. I want fresh content. You want fresh content? I got your fresh content right here. Greyhound on Apple Plus, a Tom Hanks World War II movie, BAM, and Palm Springs, which my man Ben Lyons raved about coming out of Sundance. It set the record for the biggest sale ever at Sundance, 17.6 million, I believe 69 cents. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. For Palm Springs, Andy Samberg's new movie, it is currently on Hulu. In addition to that, the great James Andrew Miller, a teammate here at Cadence 13, his Origins podcast, Almost Famous, turns 20. Jim tells us some great stories about Cameron Crowe, Philip Seymour Hoppin, and much, much more, plus some entertainment news involving Rami. And how about this? A book review. I bought Jim Carrey's book Thursday afternoon in Paramus, New Jersey. I finished it Sunday night. Two, three and a half days, a 254-page book of fiction, which is very funny and very bizarre. If you're a Jim Carrey fan, you're going to love it. I'll even read from a few excerpts, and hopefully that will encourage you as to whether or not you want to buy the book. As always, thanks for subscribing, rating, and review on Apple Podcasts. That's how we keep things churning. Doc Lou Iowa, who's definitely commented before, he wrote, great movie year. So many of them. He's talking about 1991, which we did on Total Recall last week. Neruda was Chilean, not Cuban. You had Scarface on your mind. That's an excellent correction. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Body Heat is a great movie, great cast, double indemnity remake. Hopkins was on screen for 16 minutes. I love the staccato review here from Doc Lou, Iowa. So not to confuse people, Joe and I also do a podcast with Michael Lombardi called The GM Shuffle. On The GM Shuffle, in which I was talking about the wrestler Mickey Rourke, Michael mentioned Body Heat, which is a Mickey Rourke movie, also William Hurt. So that's why... Uh, Doc Luaiwa here is throwing in body. I've never seen it, but I would like to see it. Uh, but thank you for the correction. I thought it was a remake of um, The Postman Always Rings Twice or something like that, but I, I didn't know it was Double Indemnity. So I, I, Double Indemnity, I adore it. Great film noir from Billy Wilder. So I will definitely watch Body Heat. And I said previously on Total Recall, Anthony Hopkins was in Silence of the Lambs for 22 minutes. Here, our friend points out it was 16 minutes. 16 minutes? You win Best Actor? Come on. That should be Best Supporting Actor. Best Actor should have been Warren Beatty in Bugsy. Total Recall and Mount Rushmore will return next week. Like I said, we've got so much content this week. Let's just dive right in here and talk about Greyhound, Tom Hanks' new film, which he also wrote. How about that? In the early days of World War II, an international convoy of 37 Allied ships led by Captain Ernest Krauss and his first command of a U.S. destroyer crosses the treacherous North Atlantic while hotly pursued by wolf packs of Nazi U-boats. That's right. Hanks wrote it. He doesn't often write we had uh, on our Cinephile Twitter, you can always follow us, by the way, Cinephile Pod. Thanks to Nick Durst, who runs that. We tweeted out, what are the worst Tom Hanks movies? Thankfully, a lot of votes for Larry Crown, which Hanks starred and wrote and directed with Julia Roberts. So he's definitely been up and down when it comes to writing scripts, but I think he did a good job here. One thing you know about Tom Hanks, this guy adores World War II films and books and archival footage. And he was really funny on Conan O'Brien's podcast I listened to. And he, he says sometimes when he's flying to England, he looks out the window and he has like PTSD. He thinks all of a sudden the Germans are coming because he's literally has made so many films, whether it's Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, or whatever he's been involved in. He's just, and think about those projects. You're talking years and years of research. And here in this case, he's the one writing the script. Uh, it's by C.S. Forster, who based on the novel The Good Shepherd. So it's a really an excellent feat by Hanks, not only to star, but to uh, write the script for it. And I think it's an excellent film. I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs. What I like about it, it's short, 84 minutes. It's lean, it's tense, and it's taut. It tells a very simple story. And I think if you're a fan of war films, you'll appreciate the precision with which it's executed. And Hanks' writing in particular, he includes a lot of uh, naval jargon. And I don't even know if it's right, because I don't know about these things. But it certainly has the verisimilitude that you'd expect of a World War II film. Uh, narratively, it's straightforward. There's not... Any character development, so I wouldn't say it's a great performance by Hanks. He just straps on the mantle of yet another good guy role and doing the right thing and head down and being stoic. Uh, but certainly he, he can do that role in his sleep. Supporting cast, including Stephen Graham, loved him as uh, uh, Tony Pro, obviously, in The Irishman. 
And Elizabeth Shue, small role, leaving Las Vegas, Academy Award winner. She's got a couple of scenes in the movie as well as Tom Hanks' wife. Other than that, it's a bunch of no-name actors. But listen, with a dearth of quality out there, if you can give me an 84-minute World War II film, that's great. And Hanks, by the way, took a little bit of blowback. He was discussing how he was heartbroken the film can't be seen in, in theaters. You know, much like Christopher Nolan or Martin Scorsese, you know, these guys want to get their movies in theaters. So immediately he had to put out like some statement afterwards about, no, no, listen, I'm thrilled that Apple's doing this and they gave us a whack of money and even on the small screen, it'll be great. And we appreciate the fact that in the midst of a pandemic, people are desperate for quality. So hopefully people will watch the film. And thanks to my man, Joe, our uh, wonderful producer. Listen, we got the, the free trial. I texted Joe. I said, listen, I don't have Apple Plus. What are we going to do? There's no problem. Free trial. Bam. So I got to watch Greyhound, and I'm going to watch The Morning Show, which I'm pounding through. I am kind of hate watching it, to be honest with you. Uh, but that'll be reviewed next week on Cinephile. But Greyhound, I liked it. The reviews have been solid. I think around upper 70s on Rotten Tomatoes. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone writes, A patriotic, proudly square tale of World War II, courage under fire, that rarely rises above standard-issue escapism, except for the soulful complexity Tom Hanks brings to the role of a naval commander and man of faith on the verge of losing faith in himself. Get a room here, Peter. I don't know about soulful complexity. I think it's a fairly straight performance. And Stephanie Zakarik of Time Magazine, watch Greyhound with a dad you love or in memory of a dad you love and know that there's no shame in having dad taste. That's a good review. It's very square, but it's solid, old-fashioned entertainment, as one might say. Joe, I'm giving it three maple leaves. Your thoughts? You said it best, Adnan, when you said that it's lean, tense, and taut, and which is what I really appreciated about this movie. Like a movie like John Wick, for example, is ten minutes of setup, and then he's just fighting bad guys for the rest of the ninety minutes. And this seemed like ten minutes of setup, and then just cool naval battles for the rest of the movie. Uh, so I didn't realize that Tom Hanks wrote the screenplay, and I really, really liked his research, his vernacular all the terms that he used and do you think that he could be nominated for either a golden globe or an academy award for adapted screenplay i don't think so but honestly we need to see what else is going to come out there because as we've discussed here in the podcast you know movies and rather than the deadline being december 31st it's going to be i believe end of february now so then the oscars will be in april so i I wonder about all the content that's going to come screaming through but I feel like it is hurt, by the way, not being on a big screen. I think if we saw it on a big screen, it gets more pub, gets more acclaim. Not everybody has Apple Plus. Like, for God's sakes, I've got everything. I've got, I pay like 190 bucks a month in my cable bill. I've got uh, HBO Max. I've got Netflix. I've got Hulu. Uh, and even I don't have Apple Plus. So I don't, I don't know how many people actually have the platform. I think if it was in theaters, it would do better. You know, when it comes to the, the awards, obviously the critics will see everything. But I think that does help when... More audiences can see it. So in terms of a screenplay nomination, I would say no. But having said that, the Golden Globes love their stars. And maybe if the movie doesn't get recognized in other categories, it's a way of inviting Tom Hanks to the party if there is indeed going to be a Golden Globes party. So I wouldn't discount maybe a Golden Globes nomination, Joe, but I'd say an Oscar nomination would be out of reach. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. And I... um. And you're right. You make a great point about Apple TV, too, because not everyone has it. But also this movie, I think, would just play better on a big screen. It's so cinematic. There's these giant ocean battles happening. And so I I, I bet you're right that that's probably would hurt it in the long run. Yeah, hopefully people check it out. If you have a plus, do it. If not, be like my guy Joe. Get a seven-day free trial. Tell all your friends, and hopefully you can see this World War II film. One other film to review before we get to some entertainment news, and then our special guest, James Andrew Miller. Palm Springs, currently on Hulu. My man Ben Lyons, who I spoke to yesterday, was raving about this coming out of Sundance. Set the record for the biggest sale, but he said, listen, Kobe died. They found out at like 2 o'clock, and this movie played at 3.30 in Utah. Uh, Even our boy Horowitz. And he said, you know, him and Josh both thought the movie was hysterical. And it works on multiple levels. I I don't want to give away too much. Honestly, we had that post review later. uh, Excuse me, earlier someone had said that I gave away too many spoilers. So you know what? I'm going to give a very lean and tense and taut review of Palm Springs. That's about that. I don't want to give away too much. Basically, Andy Samberg plays a guy wearing a Hawaiian shirt, slacker dude, drinking beers in a pool, and he wakes up, and it's Groundhog Day. The same day keeps happening over and over, and you say, okay, well, how's this different than Bill Murray's movie? Uh, it's a lot different. He's got a really fetching and warm presence in Krista Milioti, who plays Sarah. She's a love interest. A hysterical cameo from J.K. Simmons as Roy, who has homicide on his brain, Peter Gallagher playing Howard. He's a part of the wedding party as well. And to say much more than that would be ruining things. So um, why is it getting such rave reviews? It's visually inventive. 
It's very funny. I think with Palm Springs and Popstar, Andy Samberg has made two of the funniest movies of the last decade. I mean, five minutes of the movie, I'd already laughed out loud three times. And I'm not a guy who laughs out loud a lot during movies. That just shows how um, <laughs> clever he is and also just profane. I mean, listen, he's not exactly highbrow, but I think it mixes the highbrow and the lowbrow. I think it's high concept. At the same time, it's funny and silly and ridiculous. And you've got you know, genitalia's tattoos and all sorts of ridiculous jokes being made. But it's got a good heart. As I told Ben on the phone, it kind of reminded me in some ways of Little Miss Sunshine, a Sundance movie that breaks out that can be uh, vulgar. It's for mature audiences, but... It's also got a big heart and it's sweet and I could see why it would do huge with indie audiences. Listen, I don't think Palm Springs, in terms of the awards race, obviously it's July, it's very early, but you know, could this be something that gets a, a screenplay nomination? Sure. Uh, could Sandberg and Miliotti maybe get nominations for uh, Golden Globes? Perhaps. Oscars may be a different, different story, but Best Comedy or Musical? Listen, Max Barbacow directed it. Andy Sandberg co-wrote it with Andy Sierra. Like I said, critics are really going to like it. It's 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I enjoyed it because it's fresh and irreverent and at times silly. And in what has been a very tough year, I think it's nice to embrace something like this that's light and funny and makes you think. Linda Holmes at NPR writes, watch it. It's fun. There's your review. Uh, Brian Lowry of CNN.com. This feels derivative, almost to the point of distraction. So much for all the critics liking it. And while try and try again exchanges can be pretty funny, the film feels as if it's laboring to flesh out even the under 90-minute running time. Oh, that's something else I liked. It's 84 minutes. Same length as Greyhound. Amazing. Anthony Lane of New Yorker, he likes it more. What a dazzling vision of the purgatorial. A desert of vast eternity strewn with so-so canapes, stumble-bum speeches, and worse dancing. Sisyphus had it easy. Anthony Lane, the New Yorker. By the way, there's two hilarious dance sequences. If dance sequences get you laughing, you're going to like Palm Springs. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. I like it a lot. And I, I feel like I'm going to like it even more, Joe, when I watch it a second time. Because there's a lot that they pack into this 84 minutes. I can't wait to watch this. I, I know Hulu confirmed, uh, I think, yesterday that this movie shattered their um, streaming records as far as like most watches netted within the weekend hours over a three-day period. And so I, people are seem to be digging it. It just seems like, a, you know, exactly what... Linda Holmes said, the fun watch, and you're right, Adnan, 84 minutes, you can't go wrong there. Did you like Popstar, Joe? I, I thought it was the funniest movie of that year, whenever year it came out, five years ago, whatever it was. You know, I've never actually seen Popstar, but I don't know if you've seen the movie That's My Boy with Adam Sandler. Have you seen that before? I have not. Okay, that th this movie kind of gives me the same vibe of that movie, and that, I thought that movie was hilarious, too, and Andy Samberg is in that, too, with Adam Sandler, but... Yeah, I haven't seen Popstar. I haven't seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Obviously, I know Sandberg's work, Dick in a Box, all the rest of it. But maybe I should be watching more of his work because he really makes me laugh a lot. So that's my boy. I'll add it to my list. After the break, entertainment news, our special guest. James Andrew Miller will be on to talk about his new Cadence 13 podcast, Origins, Almost Famous, Turns 20. All right, entertainment news to pass along here. We've got news here. This is Tuesday afternoon. We're taping this, and Joe tells me apparently word circling that Tenet will once again be delayed. Oy. We were hoping for July 17th and July 31st and August 12th, and now it looks like it's going to be even later. God, cannot wait to see this movie. Um, however, it is important to have perspective as we go into our entertainment news, as there's some sad news to begin with. Kelly Preston. She was in Jerry Maguire. She was in Twins, dying at the age of 57 years old. John Travolta's wife of 28 years, dying two years after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. A lengthy acting career, not only twins, also Space Camp, Mischief, uh, For Love of the Game, What a Girl Wants, The Cat in the Hat. Uh, very, very sad news. I think all of us, uh, because they kept the battle private, did not know she was suffering and battling this terrible ailment. And so rest in peace to Kelly Preston and obviously our condolences to John Travolta and the family. In other news, one of my favorite shows, Rami, been renewed for a third season. Like the first two, season three will consist of 10 episodes, 
And this news comes just over a month after the debut of season two, which premiered on May 29th. The series co-created and starring Rami Youssef follows first-generation Egyptian-American Rami Hassan, who is on a spiritual journey in his politically divided New Jersey neighborhood. In the second season, Rami delves further into his spiritual journey, finding a new Muslim community and embracing a deeper commitment to his faith. The series has been well-received by critics with the first two seasons holding a combined critical approval rating of 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. In addition, Youssef won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Comedy Series for his work in Season 1 of the show. The series was also one of 30 Peabody Award winners this season. And that moves to the Television Critic Awards, a potential hint of what the Emmy nods could look like or potential snubs later this month. I believe July 28th, the Emmy nods come out. The TCA, that's right, TV Critics Association, giving out their nominees. Among performances, women are again heavily favored. Um, and look at all these shows that got nominated. Netflix following with 10. HBO got 16 total mentions. I'll fly through a few of these. Individual Achievement in Drama. Uh, Mark Ruffalo nominated for I Know This Much Is True. Ray Seahorn for Better Call Saul, one of my favorites. And Jeremy Strong for Succession, again, one of my favorites. So between those three, good luck. Also, Regina King's nominated. Kate Blanchett. Uh, individual Achievement in Comedy. Great to see Rami Youssef is nominated for Hulu. He'll be up against Issa Rae of HBO. As you've noticed, they go men and women together. Catherine O'Hara for Schitt's Creek. Uh, Christina Applegate, Dead to Me. So obviously some good nominees there. Uh, in terms of outstanding achievement in movie or miniseries, you've got Little Fires Everywhere, Mrs. America, Normal People, The Plot Against America, Unbelievable, and Watchmen. And for the big categories, outstanding achievement in drama, Better Call Saul, let's go. The Crown, Euphoria, The Good Fight on CBS All Access, Pose, and Succession. I think it should be Succession or Better Call Saul. Outstanding achievement in comedy, Better Things, Dead to Me, The Good Place, Insecure, Shit's Creek, and What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, I'll be pulling for Shit's Creek for the Canadians. And Program of the Year, Better Call Saul, Mrs. America, Shit's Creek, Succession, Unbelievable, and Watchmen. I know there's been a lot of buzz around Watchmen. I believe Joe has watched it. I know it got rave reviews. But again, I'm cheering for Succession or Better Call Saul. This could be a good preview, Joe. What to expect with the Emmys later this month. Yeah, and I, I mean, if if Ray Seahorn gets snubbed again, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have faith in television anymore if that happens. So I'm glad to see that she gets nominated. And you're right, Shit's Creek. Um, I don't know if you watched it. I watched every season. Loved it. Catherine O'Hara. It's so so funny. So I'm glad to see both of those shows getting attention, particularly in a year where Fleabag is now off the air, and it just seems to have dominated the comedy categories in the past. It's a great point. No Fleabag here. No. No Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, no Barry. So that, that definitely will open things up a little bit. Uh, in terms of the box office, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back is back again, topping the U.S. box office, giving it the top spot for the first time in 23 years. According to Deadline, it's made an estimate $175,000 across 483 locations that showed it in the U.S. Its final weekend tallies between $400,000 and $500,000. Think about that. It's all just drive-ins right now, right? I'm sure there's some movie theaters open somewhere, but The Empire Strikes Back is number one once again. For my money, it is the best of the Star Wars movies, mainly because the bad guys win. And at long last, we now know why James Gandolfini and SpongeBob are such good buddies. Following up on a tweet that captures some of Gandolfini and SpongeBob's public appearances together, Mel Magazine's Miles Klee looked into how an actor best known for playing a Jersey mob boss became friends with him. The story is somehow even more enduring than just seeing Gandolfini palling around the bug-eyed cartoon character. Klee outlines the actor's philanthropic work, which focused on education, cancer research, and veterans, and found that his SpongeBob hangouts took place at an annual event called Dream Halloween, that raises money for children and families affected by HIV slash AIDS. There you have it. James Gandolfini was a damn decent human. Uh, if you Google it or just go on Twitter, you'll see a lot of pictures of James Gandolfini and SpongeBob. Pretty good combo. I mean, that's a, that's a buddy comedy. I wish we could have seen, Joe. Yeah, I was just thinking that if there is some sort of Sopranos SpongeBob matchup, you know, where Tony had to go to the Krusty Krab to make like a backroom deal, something like that. But I'm glad, I mean, you, you hear all these stories of James Gandolfini just being a good dude, and this is just another affirmation of that. So I was happy to see it. No doubt about it. I've been pounding through Sopranos episodes because what else would I be doing? I watched Amour Fu again, which is Lombardi's <laughs> favorite. I watched Pine Barrens again, which uh, Joe and I know won. GM Shuffle, we did not have that in our top five episodes, and my friend Alpha Hill won, chastised me. I've got to find a way for Pine Barrens. I mean, he's an interior decorator, and he killed 200 people. I watched uh, I watched Blue Comet again, which is an episode I love. I mean, God, it's... 
Gandolfini. As James Andrew Miller is about to tell us, you can't imagine The Sopranos without James Gandolfini. Here's a lot more from our special guest. Pleasure to welcome back to Cinephile our friend James Andrew Miller, an award-winning journalist who has worked in politics, media, and entertainment in a career spanning more than 20 years. He is the best-selling author of such books as Live from New York, An Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live, Those Guys of All the Fun, Inside the World of ESPN, and Powerhouse, The Untold Story of Hollywood's Creative Artists Agency. He's also a teammate here at Cadence 13. His terrific podcast, Origins, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Sex and the City are ones I've enjoyed in particular. And now, Origins Almost Famous turns 20. All five episodes of the new season are available for binge list an Apple podcast, Spotify, radio.com, or wherever you get your listens in. Jim, thanks so much for coming back. First and foremost, how are you doing? How are you, your three kids, coping during this surreal time? You know, thanks for having me. It's all about being healthy. So uh, I think that's that's the bar, and uh, thank God we are, and uh, everything else is gravy. I was going to say, day by day, and uh, I do want to ask you a little bit about the HBO book you're working on at some point, but let's dive into Almost Famous. It's funny. I know we love round numbers. So I say, okay, well, this makes sense. It's turning 20. But you could have done Requiem for a Dream, which turned 20. You could have done uh, Casino, turns 25. But this movie in particular has resonance for a lot of people. And as you point out in the podcast, it, it was not a box office juggernaut. It was certainly critically acclaimed. Cameron Crowe won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. It's probably the film with which he's most identified with, even though he's also been a guy who's done Jerry Maguire and singles and wrote Say Anything for you specifically, when you're looking at certain topics to tackle, what was it about this movie that was resonant for you? Well, uh, I mean, look, I obviously loved it. But the most important thing is there was my daughter who actually wound up going to film school. When she turned 12, I said, OK, you're I think I'm going to get this right. I think you're old enough. I think it's appropriate. Here's what we're going to watch on your 12th birthday. And I showed her almost famous. And uh she loved it. She carries it inside her to this day. And uh, there was a reason, probably the reason why when she was 15, she was asking me to give her money to go to Coachella. Um, <laughs> I do think it's one of the great, I mean, it's one of the great coming of age movies. I, I think it's just beautifully written, beautifully done. And I really, I wanted to do something with Cameron. And I obviously, he's got a bunch of movies that you could pick from, but when I saw the 20th anniversary was coming up and it was almost famous, I, I just couldn't resist. As we know, Jim, when it comes to movies, casting is everything. And the first episode I listened to, it's amazing to think about what choices could have been made. And the fact that Brad Pitt could have been in this movie, Natalie Portman could have been in this movie. It seems so indelible now when you think of the performances, whether it's Billy Crudup or Kate Hudson or whomever it is. But could you imagine how much different the film would have been if Brad Pitt was the star? Well, that's why I decided to do episode one with casting because there was, and there was a time when the Francis McDormand role, uh, Cameron was thinking about Meryl Streep for it. And so I think, look, I, I, at some point, I really do want to do a book about movies and casting and thinking about some of the casting that almost happened and some of the epic decisions that either directors made or actors made to uh, not do a movie. And it's, it's just, it changes everything, of course. And so in the case of Almost Famous, yes, Meryl Streep was there. Cameron, it was interesting. I think a lot of people who have been fans of Almost Famous didn't realize that Cameron worked with Brad Pitt on Almost Famous for close to four months. This isn't like, this isn't like, let's meet for coffee. Hey, I'm doing this semi-autobiographical movie about, you know, my life in, in, in rock and roll. Uh, would you like to do it? And they talked for 20 minutes. I mean, they were working on scenes. They were they were getting together for four months. That's a that's a pretty big commitment. And ultimately, Brad decided that he didn't want to do it. But you know, I think that as Tom Stoppard wrote, every exit is an entry somewhere else. And you know, Brad saying no gave them Billy Crudup. And uh, I mean, Billy is masterful in this movie. And in a way, you could make the case. And I challenged. Cameron with this, and I think he, he kind of came out the same way with me, which is uh, Billy wound up being 
almost, I mean, you can't say better than Brad Pitt, but in a way better because he and Jason were like equals, Jason Lee and the rest of the band. And if you have Brad Pitt, he's such a, even back then, he's, he's such a big, big blip on the radar that it kind of like, it, it just kind of like it's a tsunami that washes over a lot of other characters. And so I think there was something really cool about the fact that you got Kate Hudson's 19, uh, you know, she had done a couple movies, but nothing as big as this. Zoe Deschanel's doing only her second movie. She's 19. Uh, Jason Lee had obviously done Chase and Amy, um, but not, uh, you know, this is a, a big, big part for him. Billy is a big part. So I think that it's really kind of cool the way it all turned out. Yeah, the film, and often it feels like a band, right? Everybody has to be in tune together. And you're right, if Brad Pitt is such an overpowering presence, if that kind of puts things a little bit off key, certainly it would be a different feel. You mentioned all those cast members. I love the stories you told about Zooey Deschanel. I forget her father, of course, Caleb Deschanel, the great cinematographer, shot The, the Natural and among other films. And uh, it's interesting, her entry into it, because you're right, she was this young ingenue like Kate Hudson. But my favorite part of the film, Jim, is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Normal, any movie I watch of his, he's generally my favorite part of the movie. And I thought he was so good as Lester Banks. Tell us the story. This is awfully unique about how he was cast for the role because he didn't want to read for it, but somehow he incorporated a Martin Scorsese American Express commercial that swayed Cameron Crowe and everybody that he was right for the role. Well, this was so this was so great because I interviewed Gail Levin, who cast Omos Ennis for Cameron, and she also cast Jerry Maguire, and she told me the story. So a lot of times in casting. You know, uh, actors of a certain stature, they won't, quote unquote, read. That means that they won't come in and read pages from the script to audition. Um, you know, they'll have a conversation with you. So you get to know them. So you can talk a little bit about the role. And Philip Seymour Hoffman had refused to read. So he comes in to the room and Cameron's there with Gail Levin. And he says, hello. And, stuff. and then he goes on this rant about this billboard that he had just seen with Martin Scorsese on it for American Express. And he's talking about, he's talking about it like, I can't believe he's doing that. I can't, what does that mean about the, you know, he's going on this whole big thing. They, they wind up talking and they leave and Cameron, you know, Gail says, what do you think? And Cameron says, well, I don't know. It's kind of hard, you know, I mean, he won't read. And Gail says to she goes, Cameron, he, he just auditioned for you. This guy is so brilliant that he decided that even though his agents, you know, don't want him to read and he didn't want to kind of read for you, like he gave you the character. He understood what Lester Bangs was in this movie. And so he basically just delivered the character to you. And Cameron goes, oh, my God, you're right. And that was it. And I'll tell you one other. This is an episode four, but I'll just tell you one quick Philip Seymour Hoffman moment, um, if that's OK. Of course. Um they're, they're shooting a scene, and uh, the cinematographer, the great John Toll, um, has lit the scene, and Patrick Fugit and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman are in the scene. And Patrick is wincing because the lights are pretty bite, bright in his eyes. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, God bless him, all of a sudden says, cut. Now, anybody who knows, like, movie sets, I mean, the director is pretty much the dictator. And all of a sudden, Philip Seymour Hoffman yells cut. And everybody goes, what, what's, what's wrong? He goes, this kid can't see. The lights are, the lights are blinding this kid. Cut it out. We got to change this. This is ridiculous. And he starts on this tear. And I think, you know, it says a lot about Philip Seymour Hoffman, but the truth is for me, it really says a lot about Cameron Crowe for two reasons. One is that, I mean, Look, there are a lot of directors that there's no way if you yell cut, that director is going to like put a bullet between your eyes or vote you off the set or dress you down in front of people or whatever. Cameron's reaction was, OK, cool. That's all right. All right, John, you want to take a look at the lights and, uh, you know, Patrick, uh, come on over here. Let me see. Are you all right with your, you know, I didn't realize that or whatever. He's totally, totally cool. And the idea that. Cameron is that kind of person uh, and that kind of director, I think explains why, if you look at his films, I mean, the, the, the unbelievable quality of people who want to work with him. 
because he is a human being. I mean, he's a great filmmaker. He's a great writer. But I think that that moment really just when I heard that story, I just thought, oh, my God, that, that that's that that's really it's a tiny little second. But boy, that says that says it all about Cameron. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a hell of a story. To have that kind of humility and just that calmness about him, that's not something you associate, you're right, with movie directors. We're talking with James Andrew Miller. You can follow Jim on Twitter, at Jim Miller. He's also on Instagram, at JamesAndrewMiller18. Cameron Crowe, as you said, Jim, he certainly had an impressive career. And with this film, you know, this was the fourth film, and there's, it's a great question that you brought up, very observational on your point. You said, is there a combination here? Um, or an analogy to Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin 4. And he said, yeah, Cameron Crowe said, you know, when you're making your fourth movie, much like musicians, this is the one that you really go for it, you know? The second one you're proving it's not a sophomore jinx. The third one is a further extension of what you're trying to establish creatively. The fourth one that you really go for, you swing for the fences. And I thought he made a great point so often as writers. I'm sure you've heard this your entire life. It's write what you know. And yet, there's a real danger to that because sometimes you can think, well, it's too self-reflective, as Cameron Crowe says to you. You know, if you're just writing what you know, is this really interesting to somebody, this story about a writer and infiltrating this band? And how do you separate your own personal reflections from what may be interesting or what may be pertinent? So I found all that stuff fascinating, how he was able to navigate his own story, yet make it certainly relatable for the big screen. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's two points coming off of what you just said, Ed, which is, first of all, the irony is he he did live this life. It was semi-autobiographical. And yet, one of the corollaries of right what you know is sometimes when the Lord wants to punish you, he answers your prayers because it took Cameron 10 years to get this script right. 10 years. And, you know, he wrote a lot of other scripts. I mean, he wrote you know, Fast Times at Richmond High when he was like a baby and cranked that out. Uh, it just, it's so interesting that when you know so much about either yourself or a world, that sometimes that doesn't make it easier. And the second thing is, let's look for a second at what Cameron Crowe decided to do for his fourth movie, because his third movie was this tiny little thing called Jerry Maguire. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. It was huge. It was, it was when you, when you have a movie that's important to Tom Cruise's career, I mean, which is a, you know, an outlier in terms of Tom Cruise's filmography, which it is. I mean, that's really saying something, not to mention the fact that, um, it was such an amazing, you know, box office success. I was actually at the Hollywood premiere of Jerry Maguire. I'll never forget this, that, um, it was a, it was a great night and the movie went over really well in the room. And there was an agent, I'll never forget this, who was so captivated by Jerry Maguire that he literally, in the aisle, after the movie was over, got on his knees and proposed to his girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, that's like, I'll never forget that. I thought, oh, this, this, this movie's going to start resonating with people if a cold-blooded agent is so uh, touched by it. But the point is that Cameron Crowe could have done anything for his fourth movie. He had the keys to the castle in Hollywood. And that could have been a big budget movie. It could have been a franchise movie. It could have been anything he wanted. And he decided instead of going really, really big to go small in the sense of a small story. And by the way, with a cast that, you know, uh, I mean, look, Francis McDormand had already won an Oscar, of course, but, and Philip Seymour Hoffman was Philip Seymour Hoffman. But by and large, this is, um, th this is uh, a group of, Great, great actors, but not anybody that you would call at that time a gigantic movie star. And I just think that's, that also says a lot about Cameron, that he wanted to use all that capital that he had with Hollywood and the studio system, um, you know, to, to make this, you know, quote unquote, smaller movie. And I love the fact his background is also unusual for a music for a film director. Of course, we talk about the fact he was a teenage music journalist, and music was a real passion of his. But did not go to film school. At one point, he tells you, you know, he loved Billy Wilder. Like reading Billy Wilder's work and watching Billy Wilder's films was his way into film. Him and guys like Sam Mendes. I thought that was amazing. I mean, I, I get frustrated so often with people who don't know their predecessors or don't appreciate artists of the past. That's not Cameron Crowe. Not only musically did he appreciate all the talent that was around him. Glenn Fry and the Eagles and, you know, Carly Simon, whoever. But as a film director, even without formal training, he realized Billy Wilder, who did Sunset Boulevard and so many other great films, was a real influence upon him. Well, that movie, I mean, I'm sorry, that book, Conversations with Wilder, is 
of course, um, inspired by one of my favorite books about film, which is Francois Truffaut's interviewing Alfred Hitchcock. It is, um, you know, if, if there's anybody listening now who's thinking about going to film school, but they think, I don't know if I have the time or I don't want to spend the money, it's okay. Just just get Truffaut interviewed, Truffaut and Hitchcock, because uh, it is a master class in filmmaking. It is just brilliant. And what Cameron did was he decided to do that with, with Billy Wilder. And um, yeah, it is, it is pretty amazing. And I think that one of the things that you also get to understand about Cameron is he knows so much about the craft of filmmaking that when he's up for, when he has a certain kind of, like I mentioned, that capital that he had from Jerry Maguire, one of the things he was able to do with Almost Famous, and it turns out to be a really big deal, is shoot the movie chronologically. It wound up every single cast member I talked to, not it meant a lot to them, and it also obviously meant a lot to Cameron because the advantages of shooting a movie like this chronologically are, you know, multi. I mean, there's just so many different benefits that you get from it, not to mention the fact that you're watching Patrick grow up. By the way, Patrick told me at one point that the, the shoot was so long that he started the you know, he was 16. He started to shoot two inches shorter than Billy Crudup. And by the end of the movie, he was taller than him. So they actually had to, uh, on the I Am a Golden God scene, had to, Billy was standing on a, like a short box <laughs> because, because Patrick had grown so much. But it also helped in terms of, like Francis McDormand talked about, the performance and understanding your character. And to be able to do that and to be able to do it all in location, I mean, it, that that really is just another layer to this movie. Yeah, and you mentioned Frances McDormand, as you mentioned earlier, the fact she'd won the Oscar for Fargo, but even the role itself, it was so atypical of her. She said, I'd be the one saying, no, no, go join the band, be the rock star, and instead she's playing something uh, against type in some ways. It's eminently quotable, Jim, this movie, and so, so many... One of the first times we got to see her as a mother, too. Right. You know, she was just, she was getting to be that age. Um, I mean, look, her, her performance in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is, I think, one of the best performances out of the last 20 years. Uh, I, I mean, she is extraordinary. She's won two Academy Awards, and she could have easily won others. But um, one of the things that was really cool was when I was with Francis, and we were talking, and it was a, it was a great interview. We spent a lot of time together. And, and, and then I had let Cameron know where we were going to be, and he came by and surprised her at the end of the interview, and they hadn't seen each other in a while. And again, another thing about Almost Famous is just this unbelievable uh, rapport and bond that everybody has with each other. I mean, they were like, you know, hugging for like 20, 20 minutes before they even um, separated. Uh, it, was, it was just great to watch. And, uh, you know, Billy and Kate and everybody, they still... They all formed this unique bond during this movie, and uh, and it hasn't dissipated at all over 20 years. Eminently quotable, very memorable scenes. Is there something for you particularly, Jim, that has resonance? I mean, I just love Lester Bangs talking about how we're always going to be uncool. I feel like all of us, no matter who you are, can relate to a scene like that. I guess my favorite, and this was something that I you know, wanted to get into with Kate because I don't think a lot of people realize that you work on a movie for 10 years, and but then Cameron is still he's still ha he's still letting letting people experiment and he's still doing take after take after take and for me it's when they're all on the bus and believe it or not Kate's line you know Patrick says William Miller says I have to go home and and Penny Lane looks at him and she says you are home and guess what it wasn't in the script that was right in the moment and I think that's probably my favorite you know moment in 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 the movie and the fact that it wasn't i mean this is the academy award winning script this is something that a great writer has worked for 10 years but yet at the same time he's a smart enough filmmaker when they're filming that bus scene to really understand that there's 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 more that could be could be made there and um 
that to me is, you know, another reason why this movie is so great. Origins Almost Famous turns 20. All five episodes of the new season are available for binge listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your shows. You're also working on this HBO book. During this pandemic, Jim, I've uh, uh, indulged, as many of us had, in great HBO programming. My favorite comedy series of all time, The Larry Sanders Show. My favorite dramatic series of all time, The Sopranos. I went back and watched a lot of those episodes. And I love Tom Fontana's Oz, which was such a critical show within HBO's uh, early you know, development to series television. How is the book coming? Anything you can tell me about Gary Shandling or uh, James Gandolfini, two of my heroes? I know, you know, whenever I do a book, there's always, I mean, it was true with Belushi and Gilda with the SNL book and um, Tom Mees, uh, you know, with the ESPN book and others. You you always think about those people that you wish you could sit down with and interview. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, I, I knew Gary and I, I loved him and it would have been so amazing to talk to him for this book. And there's I mean, Jim Gandolfini is, uh, you know, I mean, he's a, just a total outlier and uh, he's amazing. I don't think that, I don't think the Sopranos, I think it's safe to say that the Sopranos could never have been what the Sopranos was if anybody else but him played that role of Tony. And so I miss them both dearly. But, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book on HBO is, you know, basically just what you're saying, which is that there are so many um, there are so many shows and movies and documentaries and sports moments and, you know, that it, it really changed the culture and had a profound effect also on the business of television because it was, you know, the first big pay TV operation. So um, the short answer is the book is going well, but um, I already have way too much. So, um, you know, it's all a matter of triage. But uh, I, I just, I love it. And I love, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of shows that I just loved as, as a fan, you know, like Curb Your Enthusiasm and Veep and others that it's just so much fun to be able to write about. No question about it. I mean, one other thought here on, on Shanling. I went back and rewatched Judd Apatow's The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling, that monumental four and a half hour documentary. And it's, so beautifully wrought because it's not only really smart and perceptive about a real comedic genius, but also it's imbued with so much love and passion from Judd, who clearly had such affection for Gary, viewed him as a mentor, was so grateful to him. And listen, a lot of people are going to know Judd Apatow because of the 40-year-old version and Knocked Up and all the shows he's produced. But I think that documentary, Jim, that's about as good as you can get when it comes to exploring creative genius and just how complicated and brilliant it really can be. Well, the other thing that Judd did in that documentary about uh, Gary is that he somehow was able to capture 360 degrees of who Gary Shandling was, and yet at the same time, we never felt like he didn't love him, that he wasn't, um, you know, he, he, he was so interested and so, he was so dedicated to making sure that we understood that Gary could sometimes be a pain in the ass could sometimes be so obsessive, could sometimes be difficult. And he, he went there and he did it in, I think a, a really beautiful way. Um, you know, and, and that he could have easily not done it. And then we wouldn't have had those aspects of, of Gary and he did it. And, and it's really, that's really hard to do. That's, that's really hard to do. Um, I struggle with it sometimes, um, you know, because you don't know where to draw the line. And um, he just, he just, he really was masterful at that. I, I, I couldn't agree with him more. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful documentary for people to, to watch who may not even be fans of Gary Shandling, but they, but they, but they are interested in the, in the process of comedy and of, of what goes on inside, you know, a comedian's head, which is, often, ironically, a very dark world. 
No question about it. Origins Almost Famous turns 20. All five episodes of the new season are available for binge listing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Miller and Instagram at JamesAndrewMiller18. His books, Live from New York, An Ancestor History of Saturday Night Live. Those guys have all the fun inside the world of ESPN and Powerhouse, the untold story of Hollywood's creative artist agency. I cannot wait for the book on HBO. Thanks so much for your generosity as always, Jim. Continued success and good health, my friend. Thanks so much for having me on. You make it easy. This is a book review. Thanks again to Jim Miller. Go buy his books. I've read all of his books. They're amazing. And now Memoirs and Misinformation, a novel by Jim Carrey, co-written with Dana Vachon as well. Jim Carrey writes on the back of the book, none of this is real and all of it is true. Meet Jim Carrey. Sure, he's an insanely successful and beloved movie star drowning in wealth and privilege, but he's also lonely. Maybe past his prime. Maybe even dot, 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 getting fat. He's tried diets, gurus, and cuddling with his military-grade Israeli guard dogs, but nothing seems to lift the cloud of emptiness and ennui. Even the sage advice of his best friend, actor, and dinosaur skull collector Nicolas Cage isn't enough to pull Kerry out of his slump. But then Jim meets Georgie, ruthless ingenue, love of his life. And with the help of auteur screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, he has a role to play in a boundary-pushing new picture that may help him uncover a whole new side to himself. Finally, his Oscar vehicle, things are looking up. But the universe has other plans. This is about as batty as you would get. Um, it's about acting in Hollywood, agents, celebrity, privilege, friendship, romance, addictive, addiction to relevance, fear of personal erasure, Canada. It's got everything in it. And the Charlie Coffin mention is appropriate because it is certainly out there is the best way I could put it. Carey, arguably his best performance, was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is written by Charlie Coffin. And Charlie Coffin here shows up in the book. I loved it because this book is heavily satirical. Uh, there's a scene where Jim Carrey's fantasizing about winning an Oscar, and Daniel Day-Lewis uh, announces he's the winner and starts pounding his heart with his fist. He's so happy for him. There's lots of moments like that. Uh, there's jokes about Ace Ventura, why it was so successful, just because people love animals. Uh, jokes about the fact he took some movies for money. Jokes that, um, you know, people's homophobia was why I Love You, Philip Morris, wasn't received better because they said you can't stand the set of Jim Carrey uh, anally penetrating a man the first scene you see him. Like, this can't happen. So there's lots of elements of Jim Carrey's life, and then there's also stuff that you feel is made up, but you don't know what's true and what isn't. Here's a couple excerpts I'm going to read. This is about Georgie, his love interest. She made $20,000 per episode of Oxana, an income secured after years of professional struggle and compromise. Yet when she had tried to buy a Laurel Canyon ranch house and gone to chase for a mortgage, the loan officer rejected her, citing the famously short lifespans of secondary characters on basic cable thrillers. She had sat in her least Prius, humiliated, ashamed, and enraged. Now she wondered at the blitheness with which money chooses some over others. Georgie had read of Carrie's breakup in the tabloids, had even watched Renee Zellweger receiving a bull's ear from Morante on the website of Pamplona's Diario de Navarra. She asked if she and Zellweger were truly finished, and he hemorrhaged. So again, he's really kind of dealing with his own personal life and obviously his press relationship with Renee Zellweger. Here's another scene where he's talking to Charlie Kaufman. And he's saying about why I should be scared of these people. And he goes, they got to my mind. They got to my mind, Magda. And they got to my maid. She did some public pissing films back in Berlin right after the wall fell. You know the drill. Squatting by the Reichstag, hiking up her skirts, a healthy flowing golden shower. Artful stuff. Even if it wasn't Christ, Jimmy, she was just a kid trying to get by, taking a pee, reclaiming the odd square foot of history. And they used this past against her blackmailed her into poisoning my pet butterflies, Jan and Dean. I found them bobbing lifeless in their sugar water. I lifted them out with my fingers. So delicate. I kept blowing on them, Jimmy. I kept wishing my breast could bring them back to life. Kaufman paused, wiping tears from his eyes. They fried my hard drives, hacked my house so all the lights flicker and strobe, and my stereo played secret recordings of Richard Nixon confessing dreams to a shrink. You know what Dick Nixon dreamed? 
and so on and so forth. And they referred to Kaufman as the shape-shifting auteur who had written Carrie the finest role of his career, Eternal Sunshine, out the spotless mind. So you kind of get a feel for it. Here's one more excerpt here for you so I can prove that this was worth the $28 I paid for at Barnes & Noble. This is, this is about as bizarre as it gets. Okay, get ready for this. Jim Carrey was just out of bed, standing in the kitchen with his coffee when his publicist, Sissy Bosch, emailed, alerting him to a deep fake video that had almost overnight gained such virality as to merit concern, or virality, sorry. Somewhere in the Korean peninsula, a tech-savvy pervert had feminized Carrey's features, given him long raven tresses, and then spliced this new female faces onto the bodies of evidently incestuous lesbian twins. Their performance in the subsequent HD video had become a phenomenon through sheer exuberance, earning 10 million views overnight, and tempting his hand beneath his bathrobe when, after clicking on the link, he saw his two digital female selves in fevered coitus. How very smoldering his eyes were in that heavy mascara. How pouty his red-painted lips. How breathtakingly symmetrical his four teardrop breasts. How coy his gasps and giggles. Was this a pent-up transsexual drive finally given outlet, or merely a particularly intense expression of masturbation's guiding narcissism? Despite Sissy's fears of brand catastrophe, he had no worries about copyright infringement, authorship, ownership. He watched Transfixed, fascination overriding all concerns for the strangeness of this new dimension. He dreamed himself alongside his female selves as they rode each other through pornography's Persepolis. Far from wanting to sue anyone, Carrie longed only to pass through the screen, to caress and be caressed, to meld with these female versions of himself in some ultimate feat of completion. How, effortless, how effortlessly they would read the language of one another's faces. Nothing to hide. No need to perform. I'd be totally understood. Jim Carrey's book, Memoirs and Misinformation, Three and a Half Maple Leafs, heavily satirical. Nicolas Cage plays his best friend in the book, collecting dinosaur skulls. Sean Penn is in the book. Gwyneth Paltrow is in the book. Kelsey Grammer is in the book. It's very funny and it's very strange. I highly recommend it. Thomas Floyd of Washington Post, leave it to Jim Carrey to tell his truth best through fiction. And Darren Franich of Entertainment Weekly. Mem oh, man, it's... It's so good, and you're you're right. How he's blending what is real and what isn't. I love how he's just starting to become, you know, this Kurt Vonnegut type, you know, Quentin Tarantino revisionist author at this point. And and all his fingers being put in, it's whether he's painting or writing essays or whatever. It's cool to see the second half of his career unfolding before our eyes. Yeah, I'm with you. It's eccentric, but it's memorable, and you certainly feel like this is the heart of who Jim Carrey is, and he doesn't give a damn what people have to say about it. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. My special thanks to James Andrew Miller, our guest. Thanks to my man Joe, as always, bringing the heat as our fearless producer. Next week on Cinephile, we'll review The Morning Show on Apple Plus, starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, and Steve Carell. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.